Well, we certainly appreciate the privilege to support One More Child. Uh, that is an organization that has benefited from our regular giving to the cooperative program uh, of the Southern Baptist Convention. But around this time of year, uh, we want to emphasize their work, and I encourage anyone who is able to do so uh, to give above and beyond uh, your regular giving to God through the local church to support the mission of One More Child. Well, today is Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day uh, to all of you, and I recognize uh, just the great work you do and the great trials that come uh, with uh, the role that you carry, and I also recognize that this is a day uh, where there's a different kind of weight uh, to it for many uh, who are here or watching online, and so I just want to take a moment and offer a Mother's Day prayer uh, for us, so if you join me in praying. God, we come to you incredibly grateful for your grace the way that it is expressed in so many ways, but specifically this morning for the way that you express your grace through mothers. God, you called Eve a mother of all living before she actually was in the role of mother. So we recognize that this isn't just about biological relationships, but this is about a characteristic, about a calling. And in this room, there are mothers, there are grandmothers, and there are women who have been a mother to so many, in so many different ways. And God, we just praise you for them and we pray for their strength and we pray for your grace to continue to cover them and we truly thank you for this. God, I also recognize that on this day there are those who wish they could hear their mother's voice. They'd give anything to hear unsolicited advice or encouragement or to see the phone ring. So God, we just pray that your spirit, your Holy Spirit would bring comfort as only you can. God, we also recognize that there are women in this room who long to be called mother, to be called mom. And for whatever reason, that has not happened up until this point. God, we pray for your peace. We pray for you to minister to them in the waiting and in the praying. And God, we pray that they recognize that what you've made them to be, who you've made them to be is not limited to those roles and they would seek how they might carry out your calling even in this time. God, I pray that you would continue to be with those who may not have had someone in their life who they would call a mother and help them to see your love and your grace and your care for them and help them to be a part of a church family where they can experience that in a new way. God, we just thank you so much for your word that you speak to us. I pray that I would get out of the way and you would say what you want to say this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I, I can remember counseling with a mom and her daughter who was a teenager and um, just kind of trying to seek some reconciliation in their relationship. And the daughter began to express all these pressures that she felt from her mom. And finally, her mom just stopped the conversation and the mom said, all I really want is for her to have peace. Now, I think that, um, there can be a lot of expectations that are put on us in this world or that we feel for even our children in this world, but the core of who we are, we are people that are created to have peace. However, I do think that peace is something that we are confused about and certainly that our world is confused about. I, when most people talk about peace nowadays, I think they think of peace in the way that John Lennon thought of peace. Words he writes in the song, Imagine, he says, Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. 
There is a mindset that if we just follow our hearts and what's right for us, that that is what will bring peace in this world and certainly in our smaller settings. But as we go through the book of Ephesians, what I would suggest to you is that what Paul is saying to the Ephesians is actually in many ways the opposite of this. And he's talking about a peace that is not imaginary or idealistic, but a peace that we can know. And a peace that he calls us to remember. A peace that is a reality. I do encourage you to turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2, where we'll be reading today and for the next four weeks. We'll be talking about how God has called us to be one. And it starts, being one starts with peace. And what peace is, where it comes from, and how to have it. And so today, I want to talk about four things for believers to remember in order to have and keep and make peace. The first thing is to remember who you were. Remember who you were. Now, at the beginning of verse 11, Paul says, therefore, remember. Hopefully, you know that when the text says something like this, you need to understand that there is a connection. What is therefore, therefore? And so, we ought to read Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 10 again to fully understand what Paul is saying in verse 11. So, I'll read Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them." In chapter 2, verse 1 through 10, Paul tells us we were dead without Christ. But God, being rich in mercy because of his love, has saved us. And he saved us to his glorious riches, the inheritance that he has for us. Then Paul says, verse 11, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul speaks to the Gentiles, and he says, you Gentiles in the flesh, you were called the uncircumcision." Because they weren't circumcised like those who had grown up in the faith, in the Jewish faith. So this here is likely a derogatory slang term. When one group doesn't like another group, we tend to nickname them negatively. Some examples of that are, no way, there is no way that I'm going to say examples of that right now. Because that is not going to go well for me, even in context. So you get the point without me giving examples. Kids, if you don't get the point, ask your parents for examples. (laughs) So they're called the uncircumcision by the group that is called the circumcision. I'm not trying to be funny here. 
those who were known for having been circumcised calls, called those who had not literally the foreskins. Kids, if you don't get that, ask your parents about that too. I'm creating all kinds of opportunities for family discussion at lunch. So apparently this group gave their gang the name Circumcision, which I grew up in the 90s with the emergence of grunge rock bands and some obscure names, but I don't think any of them would have ever considered using this. Listen, people get weirdly prideful about religion. And I could talk about that for an hour, but it's not the point of the sermon. So what Paul's doing is he's reminding them that this is a fleshly thing that they're taking pride in. He says, which is made in the flesh by hands. His point is that this is a work of man. And he's referring to this because there's some legitimacy to the distinction here. Gentiles, this is who you were. And this wasn't just a physical distinction, but there was a spiritual distinction. He says, remember that at that time, you were separated from Christ. You didn't have Jesus. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise. God made a covenant with Abraham. He said he was gonna bless him. He was gonna make his name great. He was gonna make him have many descendants and through his descendants, through his offspring, all the nations we bless. God continued to renew that covenant with the descendants of Abraham, now called Israel, to love them, to bless them and ask them to honor him so that all the nations would see his glory through them. Now, yes, God let those who weren't of Israel become Israel. But Paul's saying that wasn't these Gentiles who he's addressing. And he says, you are having no hope and without God in the world. Israel had the hope of the Messiah. The Gentiles didn't. Now, it's very important that we understand that this is a description, not of a special group of people that happened to be living in Ephesus at this time, but that this is descriptive of all men and women who by nature are without God. The difference I see, the biggest difference I see between people who have Christ and don't have Christ is hope. Hope in death. Hope in sickness. Hope when our ideals and our plans don't turn out the way that we want. Alistair Begg says that if we reject God's revelation of himself in scripture, if we suppress the truth of God, then we will find that we are very quickly taken up with superstition and with novelty. This is why those without Christ or who aren't mature in Christ are always looking for signs, wondering what signs reveal about them and what they should do. Or they're looking to things like horoscopes for advice or trying to find some new teaching that will revolutionize their life. Or they look at their circumstances and they give too much weight to their circumstances. Paul says, remember, this is how you used to think. And he wants them to look at how they used to think. Remembering how hopeless we were without Christ is a great reminder of how much hope we have in Christ. Remembering how hopeless we were without Christ is a great reminder of how much hope we have in Christ. People often kind of say, don't look back. Don't look back. But I think it's healthy to remember who you were. Now, I want to read something that almost seems contradictory of this, written by the same guy, Paul. In Philippians chapter three, verse 12 through 15, because I, I think this helps us understand this tension of looking back and looking forward. He says in Philippians chapter three, verse 12 through 15, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, 
I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. I think what Paul is saying here is he's saying that when we think of who we are presently, we're thinking of it in terms of the grace that we've acquired in our life, given to us by God. And so it's healthy to remember who we were apart from Christ, but it's not healthy to remember the glories we had apart from Christ or the failures we had apart from Christ. But who we were should fuel us in how we live now and how we look forward to the life that God has called us to live. Now, I would suggest this morning that if you became a Christian when you were young, you might be tempted to think, I have nothing to remember. My concern for my son Judah is that he would really say, I've only known being a Christian and that I have no great testimony. But I don't believe Paul wrote this text just for people with dramatic conversion stories. He's writing it for all Gentiles to urge us to reflect on what our condition would be apart from the grace of Christ. Paul is not describing a marginal shift in thinking that takes place. He's describing a decisive and dramatic change when we go from death to life in Christ Jesus. Remember who you were. The second thing that we ought to remember to have peace and to make peace and keep peace is to remember why you are who you are now. Remember why you are who you are now. Verse 13 in Ephesians chapter two says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. But now in Christ Jesus. So when we remember who we were and we see ourselves now, it is always with this in mind. But now in Christ Jesus. And he says, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In Christ Jesus, you have been brought near by his blood. This is why we remember his death in the observance of the Lord's Supper. This is why we sing of the blood of Christ. This is why we focus on the cross of Christ. Martin Luther said that we all carry about in our pockets his very nails. That as we're walking or standing or wherever we go, we put our hands in our pockets and we remember what it is that got us where we are today. We are righteous because of the crucifixion. Our position is holiness before God because of the crucifixion. We have confidence because of the crucifixion, not by circumcision nor baptism, not catechism nor traditionalism, nor spiritualism or conservatism or liberalism, not by eating the bread or drinking the cup or giving the tithe or attending the service or memorizing the scripture or pleasing the leaders or sharing the gospel or even growing in grace. There is one reason that you and I are brought near. It is the blood of Christ. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. As Paul says in Galatians chapter three, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. In verse 14 he says, for he himself, is 
our peace. We are looking for peace in relationships, accomplishments, possessions, experiences, discussions, professionals, and religions. And we will only find it in Jesus Christ. He himself is our peace. As Eliza Hewitt writes in the hymn, my faith has found a resting place. My faith has found a resting place. From guilt my soul is freed. I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. I need no argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. He himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility. I think the implications of this on race and class and background are significant. And we're gonna talk about this and some of those applications in the last week of this series. But what we need to understand right now is what Paul is saying here. When Paul wrote this letter, there was a literal wall standing in the temple that excluded the Gentiles from entering the temple. Josephus, the historian, tells us that attached to this barrier at intervals were messages in Greek and Latin, warning that the Gentiles must not proceed further lest they die. One of those ancient notices is now on display in a museum in Istanbul. So Herod creates a court of the Gentiles attached to the temple to allow the Gentiles to worship. And the Gentiles were not really welcomed there by the Jews. The popular Jewish mindset in this day hoped that the Messiah would come and cleanse the temple of all the Gentiles. Moreover, in this day, when the Gentiles would come into the court of the Gentiles in first century Jerusalem, they were not welcomed. Instead, the court was filled with merchants who sold animals for worshipers to bring in sacrifices and money changers who exchanged Roman coins for shekels that had no image of the emperor on them and thus were fit for payment of the temple tax. And they were taking an advantage because they felt less of them. The sentiment would exist strongly amongst Jews even into the early 1900s, the setting of the fiddler on the roof, which shows Tevye's daughter seeking to marry a Gentile. She calls out to her father and he refuses to turn back and he just keeps walking away from her. Tears are running down from both of their face and he says, you are dead to me. This is the mindset that existed from the Jews to the Gentiles and from the Gentiles to the Jews and God doesn't want this. And I think this is why he allowed the physical temple to be destroyed and this is why I don't think he wants a temple to exist the side of heaven at least in the same way it did then. If you read through the New Testament, the overarching theme of the New Testament is that God's covenant to Abraham, that all the nations would be blessed and his offspring has come true in Jesus Christ. And the temple was destroyed physically in AD 70, but it was destroyed spiritually in AD 33. In Christ Jesus, God was establishing a new covenant, a covenant to bless all of mankind. Verse 15, in Ephesians chapter two, Paul says, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Now, if you know the Bible, then perhaps the first thing you thought of, like me, when you read, read that verse, is the very words of Jesus in Matthew five seventeen when he says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. But then here in Ephesians chapter two, verse 15, Paul says, by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances. Let me show you how these things are both true. 
First of all, there's a slight difference in the words. In Matthew chapter five, when Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, that word abolish is actually a Greek word, kataluo, which means to destroy or to get rid of. He says, I did not come to destroy or get rid of the law and the prophets. In Ephesians chapter two, verse 15, whenever Paul says, by abolishing the law of commandments, it's a Greek word, kardagayo. It's a different word. It means to invalidate or nullify. So he says, he nullified the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances. So Jesus fulfilled the law, period. Jesus abolished the law expressed in ordinances. Howard Hayner says it this way, the law was not put to death or destroyed, but has been rendered inoperative or nullified for the believer. You see, the law is alive. It serves as a restraint on mankind and it serves as a mirror to mankind. And the non-believer who looks at the law sees their need. Now, don't misunderstand this, because some people take this and they say, and that's why once you're in Christ, we once were under the law, but now we're under grace, therefore there's no law. That's not what we're talking about. Christ has fulfilled the law insofar as he has exhausted its demands, and he has taken on the punishment it says we deserved, and he has kept it in all its fullness. But the law remains for the believer a mirror in which we see ourselves. And so then we understand the Ten Commandments not to be a ladder that we climb up to have acceptance with God, but a mirror in which I see I need God. I do tell lies. I do covet. And my only hope is in one who would keep the law for me. And when I'm wondering what it means to live in purity and holiness and not to covet and not to tell lies and honor my father and mother, the work of the Spirit of God is to show me that, not as a means of acceptance with God, but as a way that I could seek and follow God. With all that said, the fact of the matter here is that the Jew and the Gentile are now united, not because of the laws, but because of the work of Christ. He has broken down a wall to create in himself one new man in the place of two. The Christian does not identify themselves first as a Jew or a Gentile, or whatever you want to say, but as a Christian. It's kind of like a wedding. What happens in a wedding is that there is a husband and wife, a bride and groom, and they come together. He doesn't join her family, and she doesn't join his family. Together, the two become what? One, that's right, good job. And they make a new family, and that family might have some elements and aspects of their former family, but it's a totally new family. The two have become one and they make a new family. This is kind of what it's like here. Jews and Gentiles are reconciled together in Christ. They become one, the church, and they start a new family called Christianity. But the reality here is that this union isn't just people coming together who think, ah, we like each other and being together will make life better. It's people who don't necessarily see their need for each other, but when they see their need for Christ, they respond to him and seeking to have the family that God has called them to have. And it involves reconciliation. Verse 16 says, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. We now have the shared identity with other believers through the cross, killing the hostility, which could also be translated killing the reason for the hostility. 
And I'm not going to read it this morning, but James chapter four is perhaps the text in the Bible that speaks the clearest to why there is division that exists. And he says, it's because of what we want in our hearts. And so you see what the gospel is telling us in Ephesians chapter two and in James chapter four is that the gospel coming into our hearts transforms the way that we think. We are no longer living according to the spirit that is at work in this air or the prince of power of the air, but we are living because of the grace of Jesus Christ. And that brings about a constant humility and repentance. And so we ought to remember why we are who we are now, and that will fuel us having peace and having peace with others. The third thing that we need to remember is just bursting out of all this, and it's this. Number three, remember the peace the cross has given you to make peace with others. Luke 9, 23, Jesus tells us if we wanna follow him, we must deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and follow him. The cross must be in view every day. We must surrender every day. And this surrender and this peace is all possible because of Jesus to everyone. Verse 17, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. That's the gospel. It's peace on earth and goodwill towards men. Jesus said, I leave my peace with you. We sing his law is love and his gospel is peace. It is peace to those who are far off and to those who are near. Some of us feel far away this morning. You've convinced yourself that you're so far away that there is no possibility of access to God. And then you hear Jesus Christ is the great shepherd and he comes seeking to save those that are lost. And even when he had 99 all safely in his camp, he goes out over the hillsides in the darkness of the night searching for the one. You feel that you are that one and that you are so far away. And if you will just turn to him, you will discover that he is the God who brings us near. And your heart is drawn and inclined to trust in him even if you've been running from him. This is the picture of the gospel that we have run away and we have seen that this world has nothing to offer us and like the prodigal son, we say it would be better to be a servant in my father's house than to be out here. And I'll go and I'll beg him for mercy to serve and when we head that way, the father runs out to meet us because we are his child and we were lost but now we are found. That is true for you this morning. Some of us are up close. We've been convincing ourselves for ages now that our baptism, our regular church attendance, and our keeping of the rules has settled everything for us. But in your heart, there is a helplessness. In the core of your being, there's no reality of forgiveness. There's darkness. You're insecure. I tried to time that better, but sorry, it didn't work out. <laughs> You're insecure and isolated at best, divisive and disruptive at worst, and you treat people as if you are the standard. And there is no room in your mind and your heart for diversity of thought or action. You need grace. We wanna be able to say from our hearts that all we really have is Christ. For on that day when we stand before him, we will have no other argument. We will have no other plea. It will be only enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. And like the older brother, you need to understand it is not your work that earns the father's love. It is your position as a son or daughter of God. And perhaps there is so much in you that is directed towards those who are different than you. 
Perhaps you've been far off from God, not growing up in all this, and you have a hard time with those who grew up in the church. Or maybe you grew up in the church and you have a hard time with those who might have walked a little bit of a different path. The answer here is gospel centrality. It's the cross of Jesus Christ being at the center of how we view ourselves and how we view others. Verse 18 says, for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. That's what's central here. That's what's essential here. And we need to remind ourselves of our need for the gospel before we approach others and tell them about their need for the gospel. Jason Dukes, who spoke to our church a few years ago, says one of the reasons the world doesn't see their need for the gospel is because we aren't showing them why we need the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. It is our hope, and this is how we have peace and make peace and keep peace. Remember the peace the cross has given you to make peace with others. Lastly, as you try to move forward in this great vision for your life, and I hope you do, I hope you want to see peace everywhere you go. As you move forward with this great vision for your life, remember this. Remember the access you have to God. Remember the access you have to God. What's so striking about the religious crowd in the New Testament days and their treatment of the Gentiles and their feeling of superiority is they're looking back and saying the Gentiles can't come in here instead of looking to the Holy of Holies and say, I still can't get in there. I still can't be in the presence of God without a sacrifice. And the good news of the gospel is that Christ has come. And he has made a way for us to go into the Holy of Holies. He has not abolished the law, but he has fulfilled it. Or as he said on the cross, it is finished. There is no longer a need for blood sacrifices because of the sacrifice of the blood of the true lamb of God. The priest that once stood in between us and God is no more because the great high priest has come. The physical temple where you had to go for God's presence is not necessary because he, by his spirit, is building us into the temple where we shall be his people and he shall be our God. The covenant of Abraham is realized in that all the nations will be blessed by calling on the offspring of Abraham and therefore become sons and daughters of God. And as you seek to live in this, things will be fighting for your identity to make you feel like in this you find your worth, in this you find your significance. And I plead with you, remember that at the core of who you are, your identity, your worth, your significance is that you are a son of God. You are a daughter of God. And understand the access that gives you to the heavenly father. Tim Keller says, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. And we have that kind of access. Understand how that changes the situations that you find yourself in. Those of you who've been a part of our church and who know me know that my biological father passed away about a year ago. And um, I won't bore you with all the details, but uh, basically come to find out he doesn't have a will and he doesn't have any kind of la lavish estate. But he does have this piece of property that uh, is attached to other properties in my family. And it's in our interest of our family to ensure that that, you know, property isn't lost and there's been some people living there and 
finally it's all clear. Hey, I'm the, I'm the descendant. I'm the only descendant. I'm the one who has a claim to this property. But over the course of this, uh, things have led to the point that the bank hasn't received payments in six to seven months. And, and so they're trying to foreclose on the property. And you can go and you can see all the, the letters that have been written, you know, the things that have been filed to say, hey, this is the direction that this is going to go. Unless. So under the advice, legal advice, I wrote a letter. I don't know anything about what I'm doing here. And so I wrote a letter and I titled this letter explaining everything that had happened and my intention to make sure this property is kept. I titled it, Letter Regarding Probate and Foreclosure. So I waited and I logged in to see when it had been filed. And I want you to listen to how the clerk of court filed it. They filed it, answer of error. Implying all these things preceding this say that this is the direction of things. But things have changed because an heir has spoken to this situation. Listen, everything we ask for may not happen. Because as James 4 says, we often ask not in accordance with the law and not in accordance with the will of the Father. And if you know me, you know I'm not a person who says we should just claim that we can have everything that we want in this life. And if we name it and claim it, we will have it. You know that's not me. But you need to hear something this morning. When the world issues a verdict on something and an heir to the one who owns it all speaks up, it changes the direction of things. People and culture, and I don't mean to be weird, but spiritual forces are trying to declare things in your life are moving forward and spelling them out and how they're all going to take place. That you aren't significant. That your life won't make a difference. That your Christian marriage has no hope and can't be reconciled. That your child can't see the light. That your disability will render you ineffective. That you stumbling in your faith causes you to not have the grace of God. And all you need to say is hold up. This is not how this is going down. And I have the very right to say that because I am an heir of the throne of God. Christian, remember the access you have to God in whatever it is you're going through and whatever it is is weighing you down and lean into his will to bring peace in your life and in the life of others around you, trusting that through all of it, you can call upon him at 3 a.m. And some of you this morning are longing to feel significant and to have purpose and to have strong, secure identity. And you don't have it because you don't know the hope that you were created to have as a child of God. May you turn to him this morning. Let's pray together. Jesus, I pray over those who are in this room and those who are listening or watching online this morning and the situations they're facing. God, you are a God of peace. Your gospel is peace. You have come that we would have peace. That's our inheritance. And so God, may we confidently speak 
to the places you put us and speak your power and speak your peace and live for your power and live for your peace in those situations. May there be light where it seems to be darkness closing in all around. Help us Christians to remember who we are. And God, if there's somebody here today and they feel like a spiritual orphan, may they understand the picture of the gospel is that you have adopted us into your family, not because of our works or our bloodline, but because of the blood of Christ and the work on the cross. May they turn to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.